please be seated. Thank you all for uh, praying for Ukraine as a church. Last week, we took a break from our John series, and we spent a week uh, talking about how to pray for Ukraine. So if you weren't here and if you're interested in how uh, we can pray, that message is available for you uh, on all of our media platforms. Uh, there, there is one pastor, I, I, I don't talk to him personally, but there is one pastor in a network that I'm part of in a few Zoom calls uh, who is a Ukrainian-American pastor pastoring a church uh, in the Midwest where there is a Ukrainian language congregation and an English congregation. And so I've tried to follow some of the news that he sends because he has friends that are pastors uh, on the ground. And uh, just a few days ago, uh, I, was, I was reading uh, one of his posts, just how to be praying, and there was a video on there. And the video is legit, and, and it just shows one of the pastors who is in Ukraine. I don't know where. They don't cite the location. He's driving around, uh, and on his mirror... On the side mirror, he has like a, a yellow band tied to it or a yellow just piece of cloth. And I assume that's some type of identification that who you are so you're not hit by the wrong people. Uh, and he's speaking Ukrainian, and I don't have that gift of interpretation, so I, I don't know what he's saying. Uh, but ultimately, the, the, the little post says that he's delivering food uh, so there's some photos of the trunk full of food, just like during the COVID pandemic when we were delivering food and, and they were trying to rescue elderly people. But as he's driving, it was just like normal for him. There's structures on fire uh, and you can see shellings where there's multiple cars just moving around it and he's just going back and forth. And here's the encouraging thing. Uh, last week, we talked about looking for God's goodness and God's hand in the midst of all trial is that on that post, and I believe this American pastor who's translating some of this, it says that, get this, nobody, not one person in Ukraine that this pastor has been trying to help has rejected prayer, and everyone he's engaged has at least been open to the gospel. And so even in the most horrendous and terrifying and unthinkable moments, the goodness of God still comes through and gives us slivers of hope. And so I think in our freedom and in our general comfort, I think we need to continue to do battle on our knees in prayer because spiritual prayer is the best thing we can do. Giving is one thing. We know that the IMB, Paul Chitwood, is on the ground in Poland somewhere. And so our missionaries are on the ground in Poland uh, ministering to the refugees, as well as I'm sure there are Southern Baptist Ukrainian churches, uh, and, and you can find some of that, uh, you know, on the on the website. The Southern Baptist does have a seminary uh, or some training institution in Ukraine as well. Uh, but continue to pray. So giving and praying are the two ways. But prayer is how we must be generous with our time, because we need to do battle for souls to be saved. We cannot save people from missiles and bombs and shellings, but souls can be saved. When the Holy Spirit moves, and today we're actually going to talk about the Holy Spirit and the work that He does. I've entitled our time together, Divine Invitation, Divided Response. Divine Invitation, Divided Response. 
I hope you're okay if I come and speak to you this way. It helps me to stay less tied to my notes and actually talk to you rather than reading off of a sermon and to share with you what the Holy Spirit has put on my heart through my time in study. You know, what we see today is that the people have been following Jesus. The crowds are gathered here now. And the context of today's passage is the the, the tabernacles, the Feast of Tabernacles, which we've been explaining for the past few weeks. Now, this was a celebration where the men of Israel, the devout men, would travel to Jerusalem, and for one week, from Sabbath to Sabbath, they would, send up, they would set up temporary tents or tabernacles or shelters which they would dwell in for just one week. And that was to commemorate and remember their, their exodus from Egypt. After the exodus, Israel dwelled in tents. They were a sojourning people, but God was with them. God dwelt with them and provided for them manna, which was the food to eat, miraculous manna from heaven. And God provided water for them through a rock. And so they had resources provided by God. And so they were to remember, they were to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles to remember God's goodness to them in a time where they were sojourning. And so that's the context that we find ourselves in. And so Jesus has been ministering for some time, and the people don't quite understand him. And, and so today we see there's two main points from our passage. The first is divine invitation, which is part of the title, where Jesus is inviting to them anybody who's thirsty. Remember the theme of the Feast of the Tabernacles and, and, and the water coming from the rock in the wilderness. And so he's saying in that context, if anyone is thirsty for water, water that is from God, I offer it to you. And he's going to clarify very quickly. There's no, there's no setting up. There's no special hook. Very clearly he says uh, that John tells us that Jesus is talking about living water. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. And then in the second movement of the passage, he talks about divine response, where now you have the different Jews responding to his invitation differently. And the responses revolve around who Jesus is in their eyes at that point. Some of them believe, man, he must be a great prophet. He must be the prophet that Moses predicted uh, that would come. Others of them are saying, no, for sure, based on his miracles and authority, for sure he's the Messiah. And others of them saying, well, how is he the Messiah? Isn't the Messiah supposed to come from Bethlehem? See, they didn't know their history. And isn't the Messiah supposed to be a son of David? How is he the Messiah? And then the Jewish leaders are debating. They're actually having a debate over who this guy is. So there's disunity among the Pharisees and the scribes. So that's what we're going to see today in a nutshell. And today, if you'll bear with me patiently, that's the sermonic part. That's preaching the inspired text. And then towards the end of our sermon, I want to take some time to explain the non-inspired passage that's in all of our Bibles, where there's a huge textual criticism issue. And just to help you understand, not so much to preach expositionally from it, but to understand why it's in our Bible, what it's there for, and, and how we can benefit from it devotionally, even if it, it wasn't inspired by the, the Holy Spirit. Okay, so with that, we got a lot of work to do. If you'll join me, I'm going to get behind the desk again, and we're going to get to work. Okay, so the first thing we see, as I mentioned, is divine invitation. If you have God's Word, meet me in John chapter 7. Meet me in John chapter 7, starting in verses, verses, verse 37. And this first 
point is going to be from verses 37 to 39. So divine invitation. We call it divine invitation because it is an invitation from a divine person. And whether the crowds understood this or not, Jesus is divine. And it was also a divine invitation in the sense where he is inviting them to receive the divine Holy Spirit. Now, here's what the text says. I have it for you uh, behind me on the screen. Jesus says, or John narrates for us first, it says, on the last day of the feast, and that's where we set up the background already, the great day Jesus stood up and he cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So this invitation is to anyone. Verse 38, whoever believes in me, as the Spirit has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So very clearly, he offers living water, and then John gives us the spoiler. John says, by the way, what he meant by living water, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. So this is not H2O, this is the Holy Spirit. And he says, but yet the Holy Spirit will be received by all who believe in him, but the Holy Spirit has not been given yet. And so we as Christians with 66 books of the Bible, we understood that he's, that, that John is pointing towards Pentecost where the Holy Spirit would come after Jesus ascends and the Holy Spirit would indwell every genuine believer. But that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is not working. Because anybody who comes to faith in Jesus, anybody who slightly understands the words of Jesus, that the Spirit is still working and moving, is just that the Spirit has not yet indwelt these believers. Because even his disciples, it's not until Pentecost that the Holy Spirit falls upon them and they receive him fully in a way where we receive the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit comes into our hearts and seals us. But once again, just like I set up in the background that it says the last day on the feast, right? Well, there's something about this feast that we need to give detail to, which is every single day of the festival, there was a water ceremony. And so this ceremony was not actually prescribed in Scripture. There's nowhere in the Old Testament where there's instructions about this certain water ceremony, but it became such a tradition by the time of Jesus that that it became normal. Everybody practiced this water ceremony. Every single day, the high priest, he would go and draw water from the pool of Siloam, and he would carry that water back to the temple where they would worship, and they would read scriptures like Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3, which is short. It simply says, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. So already you see already a spiritual understanding of water is that like you go to a water and draw well, there's going to be a day where people are drawing from the well of salvation. It's a spiritual understanding of water. The water ceremony was meant to remember God's miraculous provision, as we mentioned, of water during the wilderness wanderings where God provided water from the rock. And so that's where it's so fitting, given that there's this water ceremony, that Jesus stood up, and when it says he cried out, he he speaks really loudly, and he proclaims an invitation to living water. 
But something about this water, notice first that it says, out of his heart will flow this living water. So that sets everything up for the Holy Spirit. That where is this water coming from? This is not just some water that you drink. This is not just a temporary drink of water that satisfies some type of temporary spiritual thirst. This is actually God himself coming into your heart, changing your heart, and developing, generating a certain quality of life. This is a lifestyle. These are emotions, thoughts, and a way of life and a quality of your belief that comes, and it's endless because it doesn't just say it's a drink of water. It says that from your heart, if you have the Holy Spirit, out of your heart will flow rivers. A river is not a pond or a lake. A river is this picture of of moving, active water channeling through you. Now, I, I take the exegetical position that most conservative scholars take is that when you read verse 38, look at it carefully, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I look at his as referring to the, the whoever. Okay, so that's talking about you and me. Whoever believes in Jesus out of our hearts. Some interpreters say, say whoever believes in me out of his heart, meaning it's out of Jesus' heart that flows living water. And I don't take that interpretation. Okay, it's overly Christocentric, and it's called extra Jesus, not exegesis. Okay, so basically, it's you and me, D.A. Carson argues, that it is us who are the channel of the Holy Spirit's work that Christ offers us. But something else that's very interesting is that your English Bibles say heart, out of his heart flows living water. Now, some of your other translations, if you have the New American Standard Bible, the 1995 version in particular, which I still think is the best version of the NASB, is the 1995. I know they have a 2020 edition. The 1995, I think, is still more crisp in terms of its accuracy to the literal nature. Uh, But that makes it very difficult to read. It translates as innermost being. You know why? Because the Greek word used here is not heart. The Greek word used here is belly. Belly. But if you were to translate, out of your belly flows rivers of living water, that means you got some gastrointestinal issues, right? So the English translators understand that you and I are not going to understand this. So they say heart. I don't play piano, so I'm going to step around it. But, um, you know, in, in, for us, we think of heart as emotions. Thank you, AV team, for moving with me. Sorry. Uh, what, I'm just going to tell you guys what I do. When I, when I make different points, I use the stage so you can follow me, okay? So if I make a point here, when, when I change my point, I'm going to change positions, okay? Um, but when we think of heart, we think emotionally, okay? We think emotionally. That's, that's what we think. So we just think, what I feel, that's my heart. The Hebrew and the, and the, and the Greek biblical understanding of the heart is the control center of your being. And so when you're truly moved emotionally, it affects your bowels. So you get this idea of deep sorrow and grunting that comes from within. When your heart hurts, it impacts your physical being. And, and so for those of you who study mental illness or b- biblical counseling, you can understand the connection between your soul and your body. 
But it's not also feelings, but it's also what your mind thinks. So consider a human being's control center of your innermost being, your inner self. This is a combination of your heart, your mind, and it affects everything in your body. And we know as humans, we are body and soul. So the soul is everything from what you think to what you feel to who you really are internally. And your body is just a shell that covers your soul. And the reason why it's important for me to explain this to you is because the Holy Spirit needs a place to dwell. I mean, He doesn't need to, but that's how it's designed. And so where is the Spirit of God working? Where is sanctification happening when He promises the Holy Spirit and the source of where that living water comes from? It is the control center. So the Holy Spirit, it comes in to control your emotions, your thinking, your feeling, your living. The Holy Spirit comes into your heart, your control center, your belly, in that sense. It affects you. And so that's something that we need to understand. Now, something that I do want to explain is that um, there are, there, there's a, a phrase, well, let me show you this first. Go back uh, to verse uh, 38, and notice that it says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, when Jesus says, as the scripture has said, there's actually nowhere in the Old Testament that actually verbatim has this quote, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And so what Jesus is doing, and he has full authority to do this, he is the word of God, is that he's basically conflating or putting together multiple ideas from the Bible. And again, he is the word of God, so I guess he could do that. You and I, we got to be careful when we say scripture says this, and then we like put a bunch of ideas together, right? But Jesus is actually conflating several ideas. Uh, there's a lot of verses you can go to. I'm just going to give you two. Okay, two. There are two in particular that connect the idea of the Spirit of God with the idea of water. The first is Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 20. So if we're talking about the Feast of Tabernacles and remembering the wilderness wanderings, take a look at what Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 20 says when it talks about manna and water. It says, you sent your good spirit, capital S, spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from the mouths and you gave them water for their thirst. And that's the Christian Standard Bible translation. That's the Southern Baptist translation. I, I like how they put this one. And then in Isaiah 44, verse 3, notice it says, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Again, it's talking about pouring out the Spirit of God uh, in comparison to pouring out water. So that's Isaiah 44, 3, and that's the English Standard Version. So living water, in, then, is a metaphor for eternal life experienced now through the Holy Spirit. So when we talk about living water, we're not just talking about something that we get in eternity. And that's why I love this imagery of living water, because it brings you into today. 
uh, when you talk about the activity of the Holy Spirit, you don't often think of what we're going to do in heaven when we're fully sanctified. And when we're, I mean, glorified, fully sanctified, glorified. And we're actually with God and with Jesus. And there's no more sin because we are in heaven. That's a completely different idea. When you think of eternal life, you think of eternity. But when you think of eternal life in this context, and you're talking about streams of living water flowing out of your heart, now you're meeting the everyday battle where we live in a world where there's a lack of peace, where we're constantly battling anxiety, where we're constantly having stress and physical ailment. And so this picture of endless water coming out of our heart begs the need for renewal. That our hearts constantly need to be renewed uh, because oftentimes we do feel spiritually dry. And we do feel like we are spiritually thirsty for something. And even people who don't have Jesus, there's a sense of thirst in a spiritual way for souls to be satisfied. There is a lack, there's a need, there's an emotional need in our hearts. There's, there are desires emotionally that need to be met. And so the contrast to a dry and anxious heart is a heart or a belly, an innermost being where your heart is like rivers flowing out. And get this, the Holy Spirit gives you spiritual gifts. So when you serve other people, it is very hard to pour out into others when you yourselves are not being poured into. And who pours into us? Yes, other people, but other people who are filled with the Spirit and the Spirit Himself through His Word. And if we are being poured into, then we can be an overflow or an outflow of the Spirit's work in our hearts. And so the picture and the metaphor is so wonderfully true that we need, it. We need the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now John, I don't want to give a spoiler, John chapter 14 to 16 does talk about the Holy Spirit that's going to come. And for you and me, he's already come. Uh, but let me just give you by way of overview, not so much looking at every text, because we are going to preach every single verse when we get there, what the role of the Holy Spirit is. Now in John 14, verse 17, the Holy Spirit is described as the Spirit of truth. We know we live in a world where we're surrounded by lies. In fact, it's not just secular lies, but it is lies in our minds, lies that there are certain things and material comforts and goods that we need that's going to satisfy us. Our sinful nature tells us that lust is going to satisfy us. All of these ideas, are, our mind tells us we're not good enough in certain moments. Our mind tells us to stress out and to take control of things that we can't control. And so we need truth. And the Word of God is our source of truth. And the Holy Spirit has inspired the Word of God. And so when we put ourselves, lay ourselves and our hearts bare before the Word of God, the Word of God is like a compass for our souls where the Holy Spirit uses His Word and the Holy Spirit uses brothers and sisters in Christ to speak the Word to us and encourage us with the Word to remind us of truth. So the world is unable to receive Jesus because it doesn't see Him or know Him. But Jesus tells us the believers will not only know Christ because of the Spirit, but they will, they will basically understand that Christ's presence is with them because they will feel the presence of the Spirit even when it seems like God is not there. So for even the Ukrainian Christians who are struggling, it doesn't seem like God is walking with them, but if they have any sense of spiritual power at all, it's because the Holy Spirit is with them in an invisible way. 
Secondly, uh, John 14, 26 tells us that the Holy Spirit will teach us all things and remind us of everything Jesus taught to his disciples. So Jesus is going to leave his disciples and, and, and they're going to be there going through many trials. And Jesus taught them many things. And I'm sure their memory was a lot better than ours because they didn't have all the different technologies that we have right? Most of us don't memorize phone numbers anymore, but there was a time where some of you had to, which means your, your mind is just going to be trained in a different way. Uh, Jesus' disciples didn't have the printing press, which means a lot of the things they learned were received and memorized by oral tradition. If not verbatim, they understood the gist of the story. They were just trained different in a different time. But there's no way to remember everything that Jesus taught, and the Spirit of God is going to remind them. Now, how fitting that we don't have Jesus walking with us exactly. We have the Holy Spirit. And how does the Holy Spirit remind us of everything that Jesus taught? This book. The Holy Spirit inspired all of Scripture, and when we look to Scripture, we are reminded and taught what Jesus taught and affirmed. And so it is the Bible is, is the instrument of the Holy Spirit to remind us of things. It's not just knowledge, but when we are in the moment of trial, when we are in the moment of need, or when we are in, the, in, in uh, moments where we need wisdom, the Spirit of God will bring certain scriptures to our minds. Or the, the Holy Spirit will use another believer to share a scripture to you. And that's the function of the Holy Spirit. John 15, 26 says the Holy Spirit testifies about Jesus. John 16, 8 tells us that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin. He will convict the world of, of God's righteousness. And he will also open the eyes of the world to God's coming judgment. Obviously, that's not everybody in the world, but those who actually come out of the world and believe in Christ. And John 16, 13 tells us that the Holy Spirit will guide believers into all truth, similarly pointing people to Christ. And so to summarize our first point, Jesus promises the coming of the Holy Spirit. That's what the living water is. And the Holy Spirit will dwell within our hearts, and he compares the person of the Spirit to rivers of, to, to rivers of living water. Now, the Jews that gathered there did not really understand Jesus' teaching. Some could argue it's because the Holy Spirit was not yet given. Now, to be fair, some of these people who are there at this festival, they're never going to receive Jesus. But there are some who don't understand him now, might even reject him now, who when the Spirit comes, their eyes will be open to the truth and they will receive Christ. But now this leads us to our second point today, which is divided response. How did the people respond to Jesus? And in verses 40 to 52, we see a divided response. Let me read you verse 40 to 43, verses 40 to 43. Here's what John says. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this is really the prophet. Verse 41, others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David? And comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Don't be alarmed. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for your laugh. <clears throat> so there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. So first in verse 40, some of them are saying, this is the prophet. So in previous weeks, if you weren't with us, we kind of explained that in Deuteronomy 18... 
Moses prophesied that God would one day raise up another prophet just like Moses. The only difference is that this prophet would speak words that are ultimately authoritative. That if you reject the words of this prophet, that you would be judged by them. And so we believe and we know that Jesus is the true and better prophet. He is the prophet that Moses spoke of. Verse 41, some of them were saying he's the Christ. The Christ simply means the Messiah. So Christ is simply the Messiah. Christ is not Jesus' last name, just so you didn't know that. His, last, his first name is Jesus, okay, but then we call him Jesus Christ. Uh, he's Jesus, son of Joseph, but we call him Jesus Christ because that's his title. He is Messiah, right? So he's the messianic savior that would deliver Israel from their enemies and restore them to glory, but we also know that he is the savior of people from, the, from all nations of the world. Now, they are questioning a couple things. How can he be the Christ? Isn't the Christ from Bethlehem? Now, they did not understand history. Because you and I, we read the Bible, we have the other gospels. It tells us that Jesus, even though he spent his life in Nazareth, being raised in Galilee, he actually was born in Bethlehem, the city of David. And they don't know that, his, that he is related to David, but we know that from the Bible. So, they, they, so these, these Jews that are there, they have no idea that actually Jesus does qualify to be the Messiah, but they're blinded by the fact that he's from Galilee. See, Galilee was just a region, uh, some scholars would use the word, or commentators would say, the boondocks. Now, I hesitate to name a city because I don't want to offend anybody. But just think of a small town in like central California. It's not that that town's bad. It's just there's nothing important about that town. Or think of a certain town in the Inland Empire. It's not that that town's bad. It's just that that town's not significant like Los Angeles or being from London or being from New York. There's nothing significant about Galilee. So people thought if the Messiah is coming, he has to be coming from a, a town of prominence like Jerusalem or Rome. But he's not. He's coming from Galilee, and that's why they're confused. And in verse 42, um, when it talks about him being the offspring of David, 2 Samuel 7 is where God promised David that one of his sons would reign forever, and we know that Jesus is the greater son of David. Christ actually fulfills all of these expectations, all of them, bar none, yet they're blind to it. But here's where it gets interesting. In verses 40, in verses 45 to 49, you see that there's also a divided response among the Jewish leadership. Notice verse 45 to 49. Here's what it says. The officers... This is not the FCBC Walnut officers, by the way. But the officers (laughs) then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? Meaning, why didn't you arrest him? Why didn't you arrest him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. So they're confused about his identity. They still see him as man, but they're saying there's something different about him. He speaks with authority. He speaks with with what seems like divine power. No one ever spoke like this man. Well, newsflash, 
He speaks like he is God because he is speaking the word of God because he is the word of God. He is the word become flesh. He is the son of God. But they can't see it. But they, at least they recognize that there's something divine about this man. Now, verse 47, it says, the Pharisees answered them. It says, have you been deceived? You're one of us. Have you been deceived by this man? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? Meaning, none of your leaders believe in him. Why don't you listen to your leaders? Why are you confused by him? Why are you starting to get convinced? Verse 49, but this crowd does not know the law is accursed. Now, what you see here is a little bit of insight into the corruption of the Jewish leadership system. These are supposed to be the shepherds and the pastors of God's people. Imagine, and I promise you that this never happens. I, I, I do. You have to trust me on this. Imagine that in the pastor's meeting, if we talked about you guys or the newer believers, let's say, oh, they didn't go to seminary. What do they know? They're stupid. They're, they're un unsophisticated. How would you feel? Yet we want to stand up Sunday after Sunday as your spiritual leaders and say, trust us and listen to the word of God. That's exactly the problem that's happening here. This is the language that they're using. There's a term uh, that translates to the, the common people of the land. And more specifically, the people of the dirt. And so you have a, an aristocrat, like, uh, I don't want to use the term, but you have people who are elite. Okay, they're aristocrats. But technically not because they're not Roman. But they're totally like the elites. The rules apply to everyone except for them. And they find ways to circumvent the rules. You can somehow say that these are the leaders of big tech sometimes. Tax everybody else, but, but not them. They have loopholes. That's exact, exactly what they're it's not that these. It's not that they didn't recognize that they were sinners, the Jewish leaders. It's just that the temple system worked to their favor, where they had enough money and ways to buy the right sacrifices so they could commit adultery and yet find a way to get out of it. And so even how they speak is revealing of why couple passages from now, Jesus is compassionate towards the sinners, but why aren't you compassionate, Jesus, towards the religious leaders? Because he sees the heart is so hardened, the corruption is so real, and he knows these people are going to kill him, and there's no way that their hearts are going to be softened. But he is compassionate towards tax collectors and adulteresses because he sees that the sinners can repent. It's not that these Pharisees can't repent. But notice how they say it. This crowd does not know the law is accursed. And so that was the belief. They're basically saying, that why are you being convinced by these people? They don't know the law. And they don't practice the law like we do. And therefore, therefore, they're accursed. But you don't understand why the Jews hated the tax collectors so much. I know this is not what the passage is saying, but I just want to give you a New Testament context of what Jesus is up against. The pious Jew who's not a religious leader and not a Roman citizen is poor. Working class. 
trying to raise their families. And they have to pay taxes to Caesar. On top of that, if they want to follow God, they need to pay temple taxes. What do you have left? Here's how the Jewish tax collectors made money. Now, the Romans were smart. They didn't send the Roman soldiers to collect the tax. They sent Jews, tax collectors, flanked by Roman soldiers. And the tax collectors, how they made money was that they would add interest or they would add an additional amount to the tax. So let's, let's use small numbers. You, I'm going to tax you 100 bucks, but I'm a tax collector. I need to make some money. I'll tax you 150 or 200 depending on how corrupt I am. But they have to make some money. So this is how they feed, put bread on the table. So in one sense, the Jewish people said, how could you come to us and represent the Roman government that's taxing us? And on top of that, you're taxing us more. And then so when they get to the, when they get to the temple, Jesus sees that they've turned the temple operation into a marketplace where the poor people, they can't afford the expensive animals. So they have to buy pigeons and everything. And so the Jewish leaders had set up this entire marketplace. And so if you're poor and you're sinful and you want your sins forgiven, you've already paid your taxes to Caesar. You've paid your taxes to the temple tax. What more do you have for your offering? So the Jewish leaders send you back out. You're not declared forgiven then or or you're lesser than us. Notice what's happening to the people. That's what Jesus is up against. That's why Jesus turns the tables and says, you've turned my father's house from a house of prayers to a den of robbers. If you can understand that context, you can understand why Jesus has less compassion. It's not that he doesn't love the religious leaders. But when you see that the the system is entirely messed up and upside down, and if you can relate to them, you can see why Jesus is the hope of the Israelite people. Jesus is the people's champion. He's the real rock. He's the real, he's the true and better, the the real rock. He's a true people's champion. For those of you who know Dwayne Johnson from WWE, okay? Now, there's an unexpected twist that we see in verse 50. Verse 50 shows you that God is working. Notice what it says, Nicodemus, and we've been introduced to this man before. This man came to Jesus in secret. He was a Pharisee. He didn't want people to know that he went to Jesus, so he went at night. And when Jesus told Nicodemus, you need to be born again, Nicodemus was confused and he didn't quite understand. And here, Nicodemus, I don't know, maybe the Holy Spirit not having indwelt anyone, but maybe the Spirit of God was working, maybe Jesus was working somehow. It says, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, very clearly, same person, and who was one of them, meaning he was a Pharisee, he said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So let me be clear. The text does not say explicitly that Nicodemus became a believer. It doesn't say that. Nowhere does it say that Nicodemus became a Christian. But I argued last time that based on what we read later, how Nicodemus 
actually sacrifices his well-being. Basically, he's going to lose his position as a Pharisee. He'll lose all his wealth. He'll lose everything. When he goes to, to claim Jesus' body with Joseph Arimathea and offer Jesus a burial. And first century historians believe, uh, or historians believe that Nicodemus was martyred for Christ sometime in the first century A.D., now, that's just tradition and history. We're not sure if that actually happened. So nobody actually knows if Nicodemus, for certain, anywhere became a believer. But based on some historical sources, there are conservative scholars who believe that he was eventually converted to a full disciple of Jesus. But you began to hear, say here, and I will give you the same application is, uh, that I gave you months ago, that you know what it's like when you're a new believer or you're young in the faith? And your coworkers or neighbors begin to criticize Christianity? Or maybe you're not yet a Christian, but you're interested in Christianity, so you've been reading and studying? So you're not ready to defend Christ in a way where you challenge the opponents of Christianity, but you might speak up and say, well, what about this argument? Or have you read this, but shouldn't we at least consider these arguments? You begin to see Nicodemus saying, wait a minute, I'm one of you, yes. But shouldn't Jesus be given a fair trial before you kill him? Doesn't our law, you're accusing Jesus of violating the law, but doesn't our law also say this? Those are strong words. And so you begin to see Nicodemus, a glimmer of hope. This is unexpected. Could it be that the veil of darkness is beginning to be lifted. Could it be, and we don't know for certain, that Nicodemus, who did not understand the concept of being born again, is starting to be born again? Could it be that Nicodemus is beginning to see a right view of Jesus? Could it be that he's a genuine believer right now, but he's just afraid to fully show his cards? That's the beauty of the Bible, is sometimes... Support from Jesus comes from the least expected places. Let me give you the big idea, then I'm going to go to our difficult text. The big idea this morning is the Spirit of God is given to satisfy the spiritual thirst of those who receive Christ as the Son of God. And applicationally, we know how desperately our anxious and dying world needs the Holy Spirit to come into their hearts and give them rivers of living water. But this only comes through Christ. And actually, the only way that people will receive Jesus as the Son of God is through the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is given to satisfy the, our spiritual thirst, is given uh, to those who receive Christ as the Son of God. The Spirit of God is given to satisfy the spiritual thirst of those who receive Christ as the Son of God. Now, I want to move forward to make a quick note about John 7, 53 to 8, 11. I want all of you to grab your Bibles and turn there. All of you to grab your Bibles and turn there. John chapter 7, verse 53 to 8, 11. Okay? I want you to see that in all of your Bibles, you know sometimes when there's a textual variant or problem, there's just a footnote? This time you have bracketed words that are that are clearly stated in the passage itself 
which tells you that you have pretty much consensus across the board among scholars, liberal and conservative. And the note says the earliest manuscripts do not include John 7:53 to John 8:11. All that means is that this portion was not written by John. In other words, the original version of John's gospel did not contain these verses, which also means that these verses are not inspired by the Spirit. doesn't mean they're bad. doesn't mean they're unhelpful. It just means that the Spirit did not inspire them. So pastors can choose whether to preach and from an uninspired text or to leave it alone, and some pastors will skip it. Uh, I chose to explain it, okay? And so that's what you see here. Now, I want to talk about why it's still in the Bible. Now, most scholars believe that this event most likely occurred, that it actually occurred. And most believe that it was such a popular story that someone who was copying John's gospel for distribution decided to add the story, and through the process of transmission, it never got taken out. Let me explain to you a little bit just about textual criticism. Textual criticism is the one type of criticism that I love. Uh, It's very nerdy, so that's why we don't talk about it a lot. But textual criticism is the study of the manuscripts, the reliability of the manuscripts, how we got our Bible, and so forth. And when you talk about New Testament textual criticism, the Old Testament's different where you have the Hebrew Bible that was meant to be secured and kept sacred. Uh, And at one point it was kept, you know, the words of God were kept in, in, in the temple. But the New Testament's very different. Before the printing printing press, how do you think they made print? They copied by hand. And so the purpose of the gospel was to get the gospel out. So you have the original manuscripts, which we actually don't have the original autographs. Those are the original manuscripts anymore. But you have the original version written by John being read to the churches, but, but right away people are sitting there copying it. Now, most likely the easiest way is, is not the dumb way, right? Work smarter. It's probably not, here's John's original gospel. Okay, now you copy it. Okay, now you copy it. Now you copy it. Now you copy it. Now you copy it. Thank God for copy and paste, right? Now you copy it. Now you copy it. That's just so dumb. That's just so silly. Most likely, you have someone standing up and reading it to you and hundreds of scribes or whatever sitting down and you're trying to dictate it. So, so in one reading, you get all these copies and you start distributing What's going to happen? Human error. And so the Bible is fully inerrant, without errors, but we don't count grammatical errors as an error that affects truth. So that's why in the Bible there's grammatical errors. Sometimes, what are you going to have? You're going to have someone who didn't hear a certain phrase. You're going to have someone who copies it twice. You know, of Christ, of Christ. How many of you guys do that in your typing? You do. You forget to put a comma. You put, forget to put... Well, they didn't have punctuation in the same way we do. But you get my point. You're going to have different versions. And as, as the New Testament is distributed more and more, you have different people copying different things, trying to get it out. 
And the later the manuscript, the more variations you're going to have, right? So the earliest manuscripts are going to be the most accurate. But they didn't have all the technology we have today, carbon dating, equipment where you put a, a piece of papyri or something underneath it and they can date it right away. So when it says the earliest manuscripts don't include it, it just means that the earliest manuscripts don't have it, right? But the later manuscripts contain it. Now put yourself in the position of a scribe. Let's just say that you have two versions, okay? So now some time has passed, but the printing press is not out there. And your job in the early church is to copy the Bible. This is the word of God. You might be afraid if you get it wrong. Would you really erase God's word? So now you got two versions. You got an earlier version that does not have these verses. You got a later version in front of you, let's just say, that has these verses. Better safe than sorry, which one would you take? Buy both, return the one you don't want later. Just in case they don't fit. That's what happened. So over time, nobody's going to say, let's erase this out of the Bible. Who would do that? Until the technology came in and tells you the earlier one's the better one, right? So hopefully you can understand textual criticism. So now you're all PhD students. Okay, now you all understand textual criticism. That's why we have it. Now what do we do, what do, we do with this text? What do we do with this text? Let me, let me explain some of the main points of it, right? is that God in His divine sovereignty somehow allowed this message to remain in our Bibles, and that's the preservation of God's Word. He didn't take it out. And what that tells you is that while you shouldn't look, this, look at this passage as inspired by the Holy Spirit, because it's not, you should look at it for devotional value, which means it's teaching truth. There's nothing heretical. There's nothing in it that's contradictory to the way of Jesus. Let me re read it to you section by section, and just give you the, the, the main points without preaching it, okay? Verses 53 to 8-4 say this, they went, they went each to his own home, and Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in an act of adultery. And she's deserving punishment. Now in verse 5, it says, Now in the law of Moses, in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them once more, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. Now verse 9. I promise I will finish soon. But when they heard it, they went away by one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go from now on, sin no more. Now you see there's a problem. The problem here is that these Jewish leaders, they, it's not that they really wanted 
to discipline the woman. Maybe they would have. But they saw in this woman's sin an opportunity to corner Jesus and to trap him. But here's the problem. Where's the man? Adultery requires two people. And both are guilty. Yes, the law of Moses says adultery is, uh, deserves death. But it's only the woman. Where's the man? Why isn't he being brought to trial? But very quickly, they would realize that they cannot use stones to corner the cornerstone. They can't. Thank you. <laughs> they couldn't corner Jesus. And so this is like MacGyver. I'm dating myself. Or TV Batman. So much better than movie Batman. Or Jack Bauer. Jesus is trapped in a corner. How? What's he going to do? How's he going to get out of this one? If he shows compassion to the woman and defends her, the Jewish leaders can accuse him of violating the law and not upholding the law of Moses. But if he says, you guys are right, go ahead and stone her, then his reputation for showing compassion towards sinners is going to go down the drain. Furthermore, the Jewish leaders are going to go to the Romans and say, look, he authorized capital punishment apart from your sanctioning and your agreement and approval. And so Jesus, what does he do? He kneels down, and we actually don't know what he's doing in writing, but most conservative scholars believe that he gets into the dirt and he starts writing their sins somehow. He starts writing out the sins of these men. And slowly they leave and they walk away. And so what is Jesus doing? He's offering mercy to this woman while exposing the hypocrisy of these Jewish male leaders. And that's what he's doing. So the way, if you want to preach this text, if you ever want to study this text, for those of you who are Bible teachers, I would encourage you to do what Pastor Terrence is doing today. The youth uh, didn't do a Ukraine sermon last week. Uh, you know, that was an English sermon thing. They preached the passage that I preached to you today. So that we're one week behind. That's why I'm running late. Okay. Um, is that what Pastor Terrence did is that he taught, he found all these other passages in the Gospel of John that are talking about hypocrisy. And he preached those passages authoritatively while explaining this passage. So the authority of those passages come from the principles that are in this passage, uh, but comes from real inspired text. But he's still teaching kind of what's happening in this text. So that's one way you could approach it. I'll end with the big idea in prayer. Okay, so let's land this plane. Big idea, once again, is the Spirit of God is given to satisfy our spiritual thirst, the spiritual thirst of those who receive Christ as the Son of God. Thank you so much for being gracious with your time and giving me the extra five minutes. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your word. We believe your word is both inerrant and fallible. It is both 100% without error when it comes to truth, and it is 100% true. And everything that you say in your word will come to fruition. Lord, help us to be encouraged through the Holy Spirit, through your word. Lord, build us up. Help us to see Jesus for who he truly is. Help us to worship you now. Thank you, Lord. I pray that all of us this week, that you would open up opportunities for us to be on our knees for Ukraine in prayer. And also, Lord, that we would look into your word and be built up. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.